This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Improvement is absolutely key. If you get out of bed and you want to strive to be better each and every day, you're going to go a long way in life. But sometimes we've got to take that word improvement and we can't just look at it within ourselves. We have to look at it in a collective way. We have to look at our society and say, okay, are we getting better? Are things improving? And there are so many different avenues, of course, to apply that. And sometimes you can look and say, man, on social media right now, there are so many trolls. There is so much hatred. There is so much divisiveness. There's no way that we could say we're getting better. But it's still important to look. It's still important to gauge. It's still important to measure as best we can. And recently, something happened in major junior hockey that allows us to maybe look and say, okay, what, what does this mean? And I don't think the answer is out there to be found just yet. Yannick Duplessis, as he looked to begin his major junior career with the Drummondville Voltageur, he is a ninth-round pick. It's hard for ninth-round picks to make teams, so let's remember that. But at the same time, he was at training camp, and he decided that he would tell his teammates and he would make it known that he is gay, which is not that big a deal except when we put it into the context of sport because it still doesn't happen as regularly as maybe it will in two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. And we still wonder where sport sits when it comes to that whole inside the dressing room, inside the locker room, and some of that locker room talk that goes on and the locker room attitude that exists. So we're very lucky to have with us right now Brock McGillis, who is a former OHLer, played in Sault Ste. Marie, played in Windsor. And Brock took the very courageous step of becoming the first professional hockey player to openly come out as gay. Brock, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope your listeners don't hold it against me that I played in Windsor. No, you know what? At, at this point, we would take a London-Windsor game, and you know, even if London wasn't playing, I think with how long it's been since we've seen OHL hockey, if it was Windsor versus Windsor, I think you'd still get London fans coming to watch what was going on. We're, uh, we're a little starved of that, but at the same time, we get to have great conversations like this. And, Brock, maybe the best place to begin, even be- before we get to... 2020 and Yannick Duplessis is kind of to go back in time because you went through some roads that were, I don't even think tough is the right word. Rough is not the right word. Hard is probably not even a word that sums it up. But we go back now to 2001, 2002, and you playing major junior hockey, or you coming up and and having an eye and, and the talent level to play professionally. What was happening in your life at that point? Oh gosh, it, it was such a roller coaster. To be quite honest with you, I mean, I was, um, you know, good enough to play at the level, probably good enough to move on to higher levels. But I was struggling so immensely. I mean, every day I'd go home at night, my billet's house, and I'd cry. Um, I don't want to trigger anyone, but I was suicidal. I tried to take my life on more than one occasion. 
by the age of 18, I was drinking daily just to numb it, just to avoid it, just to suppress it. I, I adhered to the hypermasculine standards of the sport. I became this womanizing jock bro guy and hated myself, resented myself. And, uh, yeah, I was constantly injured, very depressed, and I went from being, you know, on NHL draft list, supposed to have this career, to being constantly injured and playing in the minors in Europe. Now, at that time, the landscape in all of our society was very different. It's hard to think, oh, but, you know, that's less than 20 years ago. It was a different landscape. How do you see the landscape now? Have we have we improved a lot? Have we improved a little? Where would you put it? I think there are people, um, for a number of different reasons, who see um, things differently. Um, I think most players do, especially young players, just because of exposure to diversity, whether it's on social media or different things. Um, I think hockey culture itself hasn't evolved. I think it's it's still very much behind, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, uh, the insularity of the sport. I mean, we're isolated in arenas from the age of seven years old, and, and our mentors, our leaders, are people from the culture. So we, we haven't evolved the same way society has. But I will say a lot of that is in terms of language, uh, more so than thought. So they they still use language that's homonegative or sexist or, as we're seeing even with players come out today in minor hockey, there's tons of racist language still used. But I, I don't know if, if their thoughts aren't as inclusive as their language makes it seem. We're talking with Brock McGillis. Brock, take us through the decision that you made to say openly, I am gay. I have played professional hockey. I've been in this sport for a long, long time, and I'm gay. What was that like? Um, there, was, there was a few different things that happened. Um, I had retired from playing, and I was, I'm originally from Sudbury, and I moved back there and started working with athletes. And a local hockey association blackballed me. I had an off-ice training business, and I coached in their association. My dad coached. My brother, who played in the O in Windsor, and Barry coached in the association and played in it as well. And uh, they let me coach, and I was the only one that coached, but my business wasn't allowed to work with their players. And when they were asked if it was because of my sexuality, um, they went and told everyone, and uh, coaches started kicking me off staff. So after that happened, there was an incident in Orlando at Pulse Nightclub where uh, 49 people were murdered. And for my community, those are safe spaces because the reality is even today, if two people, two men are walking down the street in London, holding hands, kissing, they may be called names. Um, and not just London, Sudbury, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. It's still not, you know, uh, a fully safe environment. Uh, being transgender in today's society is definitely not a safe place. So for me, it was just um, these things happened, and I said enough's enough, and I, I wanted to empower myself, hopefully help a few people. So I reached out to Sanaya Sipurji, who used to cover the league for the Toronto Star, and at the time was with Yahoo Sports, and I said, I'm coming out. And we wrote an article, and I came out publicly in the hopes of, you know, at the very least empowering myself, and hopefully, like I said, help a few people. And what happened? 
oh gosh, um, my life changed. <laughs> um, uh, my life changed forever. I mean, uh, the first day alone, I received over 10,000 messages from people all over the world. Um, I started getting requests to speak. <clears throat> I work now as a full-time public speaker. I speak at, you know, schools, college universities, corporations, events, you name it. I'm there. Hockey teams I've gone around to. Uh, most of the OHL, not going to lie, haven't been in the Knights locker room yet. Kind of want to. Um, and um, just my life changed in that way. I have a TV series in the U.S., uh, digital TV series. I, I've become an activist, and, and it's I've shut down the training businesses, the hockey businesses, and and work on this full time and, and uh, try and help people and try and be a voice of change. We're talking with Brock McGillis, and Brock is the first professional hockey player to come out as gay. And now we look at a guy who was born in 2003, Yannick Duplessis. He's from New Brunswick, and going into his major junior career, he came out as gay. Take us through what you have seen in Yannick's story. I mean, every story that I hear has a lot of similarities um, in, in the hockey culture. There, there's a ton of overlap in uh, the behaviors and the attitudes in the locker room, going back to my story. And, and I mean, I was pretty honored. I've been in touch with Yannick for months. Um, we were put in touch by a couple of media people back in May. So I've been able to talk with him and kind of support him and try and be there for his family as well if they need anything. And um uh, you know, the, the homophobic language he heard in locker rooms from coaches, um, you know, the biases some players had um, uh, made him uncomfortable. And um, he struggled with that, and I would argue probably affected his play. And who knows where he'd be today if, you know, the, the environment was inclusive. And um, then... Honestly, hearing him come out, um, I, I didn't know the story was going to drop that quickly. It, I was scared. I was really worried for him because it's uh, it's an overwhelming experience that, you know, uh, you'll never be prepared for, especially, uh, you know, the impact of uh, hockey on Canadian culture, the impact of being queer in a hyper-masculine sport in Canada is, like hockey is is. So crazy, so crazy, but I, I'm ultimately so proud of him. He's a courageous young man. At 17 years old, is there anything that you've told him that, that he needs to be ready for? Because 17, you're talking getting 10,000 messages the next day. I mean, if he's got people constantly saying, hey, I've, I've got to talk to you, what do you tell him in terms of what he may have to deal with just because he's a public figure doing this? Um, inevitably there's going to be hate and there's going to be negative messages and, uh, you have to be prepared that those are going to happen. It scared me as a minor having those happen. Um, there's going to be people who, you know, mistell your story and, uh, be prepared for that. Don't read comment sections, privatize at least initially your social medias, especially as a minor. Because um, he was getting hate comments there on his own personal Instagram. And so I, I suggested that he make it private. Um, uh, you know, 
stay grounded, take some time away from socials, take some time away from the attention, because there's going to be an array of emotions. I mean, I prepared, like, like I had an idea that eventually I'd be doing this and like for years and I worked through, you know, I was, I was in my early thirties when I came out publicly and, and I had worked through my struggles, uh, my oppression that I experienced within the sport, outside the sport and, and, you know, my internalized homophobia and everything else. So, uh, for a 17 year old to do that without, you know, probably having fully gone through, um, the internal acceptance it's a daunting task and you have to make sure you put yourself first and put your mental health and well-being above everything else well brock what you did opens doors for so many people so thank you for being as courageous as you've been in your life because nobody should have to go through what you had to go through and here's hoping that it it makes it at least a little easier and that yannick makes it a little easier and eventually maybe it's it's just something that we don't have conversations like this about because we don't have to so thank you for having this one because i don't think we're quite there yet but maybe we're headed in the right direction yeah, thank you. And and I think it's up now to leagues and teams to put uh, start humanizing issues and put in better education to shift the culture, to be ready for players to come out and, and create the environment that is inclusive for all people who want to enjoy this great sport. Well said. Brock, you keep safe. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Take care. That's Brock McGillis, who played for Windsor, played for Sault Ste. Marie, played professionally in Europe and decided he was going to let people know what what he had to, that he is gay. And from there, as he says, his life changed. 10,000 messages that very first day. But it still doesn't make it easy for Yannick Duplessis at 17 to do the same thing. We are at a spot in this province where we're being tested. We really are. We are being tested because we have, for the first time in this pandemic, seen something similar. We go back to March, nobody knew anything. Do you go for March break? Do you go to Florida? Do you stay home and hide in a closet? We didn't know. We had no idea. And then cases came down. People were distancing. Masking became law. People are washing their hands, controlling the number of people that they're hanging around. Then all of a sudden that seemed to lapse a little bit. And now we may be in a very similar spot to where we were when case counts started to rise. But don't worry, because we've seen this before. So we know how to act, right? Well, that's the test that we are heading into. And what was one of the worst tragedies If we go back to March, it was not being able to identify that long-term care homes and their residents were at risk. And what did we see? We saw a lot of people lose their lives. We saw a lot of people lose their loved ones because of that. And then we had the premier come out saying, don't worry, he's putting an iron ring around long-term care. Well, what are we expecting now if cases do continue to rise in long-term care? Joining us is Dr. Nathan Stahl. Dr. Stahl, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate the time. Great. Thanks so much for having me. 
Dr. Stahl works at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital and has taken a look at long-term care homes. Do you look at this and say, okay, at least at least we learned, at least we know where to identify things so that we can protect long-term care homes, or do you look at cases rising and do you believe they're still vulnerable? Oh, there is no doubt that they're vulnerable, and we are seeing that uh, in early data coming out across the province. Uh, as of yesterday, um, there are now 29 long-term care homes under outbreaks across the province. There are 51 active uh, resident cases, 82 active staff cases. And tragically, at, at one home in Ottawa, there's been 11 resident deaths uh, in, in the last week at West End Villa in Ottawa. Let me put that in perspective. Um, over the In the month of August, and really until Labor Day weekend, um, we had one COVID-19 death in a long-term care home residence. We were sitting in about six to seven homes under outbreak. So there is already the makings of an evolving disaster in our province in long-term care homes. The makings of an evolving disaster. No, 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 because we, we needed to have learned. What haven't we learned? How, we, how are these case counts rising among long-term care homes and among residents in those homes? What, what is happening? So the greatest predictor of whether a home is going to go into outbreak is the prevalence of COVID-19 in the community. And even though everyone is saying that, you know, cases are contained to younger adults and to younger populations, we have seen in other jurisdictions that cases will eventually infiltrate older adults and they'll eventually infiltrate congregate care settings like long-term care homes. So we are now at almost 500 cases a day in the province. Uh, people may our members are quite short in this pandemic. People may not realize that we peaked at about 550 cases a day uh, back in the spring when everyone was inside, afraid of the virus, vigilant, bars and restaurants were not open, and then certainly schools were closed. So I think the number one factor at play here is the high prevalence and the rising prevalence of COVID-19 uh, in our community. And that's the number one thing we need to be doing right now is take more decisive action and the government needs to take more decisive action to control the prevalence in the community. With that decisive action, we're talking with Dr. Nathan Stahl, who practices geriatric medicine, who works at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital. Doing that, what do you think we need to implement? Because obviously we need to implement it quickly in order to have better protection than we may have right now. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we know what needs to be done and to, to control uh, community transmission. It's going to be very difficult decisions that our decision makers are going to have to make about closing businesses again and, and shutting down society, hopefully in a more targeted way. Um, but I think there's going to have to be some very difficult uh, actions that are going to have to be taken. So the other thing is not just preventing cases, but also managing and mitigating them. And we're seeing in Ottawa, in that same home, West End Villa, the challenges that the home is having. And so here's where I think the other shortcomings have been in our long-term care sector. Firstly, we haven't provided staffing to the levels that are required. Uh, we saw in the spring that homes had catastrophic depletion of their staffing when, the, when they got infected. And, and long-term care homes are already chronically understaffed before all of this. The second thing is they need much greater uh, expertise in infection prevention and control. There's been recommendations made in June from experts across our country, uh, across our province, 
to provide each home with an infection prevention and control practitioner. That has not come. And the most terrifying thing, I think, about all this is there doesn't seem to be a clear emergency management plan. So in the spring, when things got really hairy in long-term care homes and we had this evolved, this really, you know, really large and unfathomable catastrophe where almost, where, you know, nearly 2,000 long-term care residents died, we were able to redeploy staff from acute care hospitals and from the education sector. Well, hospitals are ramping up right now and schools are back. So who is going to come and fill in and, and help these homes if things get further out of hand? And the ultimate is just to keep them from getting further out of hand. And that comes down to what happens in the next little while. And we know, Dr. Stahl, we know how deadly this virus can be for people who are over the age of, would you pinpoint it? Is is there a number we can use to fill in that blank over the age of? You know, it's not so much age. Um, You know, age is probably the minor contributor here. Um, We know that as you age, your immune system ages like the rest of your body and it becomes a little less robust. But long-term care home residents are frail for several reasons. They have multiple medical conditions. They have multiple, they take multiple medications. Many of them have dementia, about 70% of residents. And so they are frail and they also live in crowded settings. So the virus spreads like wildfire. And because of their cognitive impairment, they're not necessarily able to practice physical distancing and hand washing the way that others are able to. So they're extraordinarily, extraordinarily vulnerable. What people may not realize is that um, between one in four to one in three, and it's actually even higher in Canada, it's about 37%. So 30%, 37% of all long-term care home residents that got infected with COVID-19 thus far have died. So that is why these settings need to receive our utmost priority because one in three residents, just more than one in three residents who get COVID-19 will end up dying. Wow. Well, thank you for... The stats, as real as they are, and thank you for being a voice on this, Dr. Stahl. We really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Nathan Stahl, and he's involved in geriatric medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. He brings up a really, really important point in that when you look at who was redeployed to help out in long-term care homes, they may not be available if we do hit bigger numbers in case counts. Because you may have those people involved in other places. As of right now, you already do, because schools are open. So what do we do, and does it need to happen maybe a little bit faster than the fall plan that's being rolled out in parts? Just a second. I'm rolling out this fall plan. It's like rolling out a red carpet. Here, I've rolled out two feet of it. Just a second. I've got to go back to my basement and get the other roll. And then you drive that back and you roll it out. Oh, yeah, we're, we've got a couple more feet there. You can, you can walk a little further. Just, I've got to drive back home and go into my basement to get the next roll. This is going to take days. Why? Why is this taking days? Because, again... We're already seeing cases in long-term care homes. You don't want them to become outbreaks. One, as Dr. Stahl pointed to, has already been deemed that. So what do we do? Do we need to look at Toronto right now, which has a number that is bigger than what we were pulling off in the province just a few weeks ago? They have it just themselves. Do you need to look and let's start, let's start regionalizing again. Let's start color coding. Toronto, you are code red. You are shut down. 
and that's what you are? Or do you look at based on population? Therefore, Toronto maybe gets a bit of a reprieve because of how big they are. This needs to be decided. This stuff needs to happen. And the government can take its time rolling out the fall plan. Today we'll talk about the flu shot. Tomorrow we'll talk about long-term care. The next day we'll talk about something else. But at the same time, we are still seeing the need for action, aren't we? Or am I, am I getting off my rocker? If I am, put me back on my rocker, because I don't think I am. We need a regionalized plan. If you're doing well, congratulations. This would be the best thing. If you are doing well, Algoma region, up around Sault Ste. Marie, congratulations. You've been relatively case-free. Here is a gold star. Everything's open for you. Toronto, Peel, Mississauga, Ottawa, sorry about your luck. It's not working out well for you. We have an opportunity right now just to talk about words that come out of the mouths of politicians on a daily basis. We have an opportunity to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose words were always so strong in what she stood for. She passed away over the weekend. We are talking right now with Professor Rob Goodman in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Professor Goodman, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Thanks so much for having me on. Dr. Goodman, you deal an awful lot with with words. I mean, you've got a book manuscript, Eloquence and Its Conditions, that kind of looks at, at speech and things like that. The, the words that come from politicians, what do we need to kind of keep in mind as we listen to those these days? Well, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I, I think the main thing is that uh, words right now don't have a lot of value. Uh, right now, the, the United States is in a situation of... Uh, Pure power politics. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, who's a uh, Republican senator, um, very famously said the last time we were in the situation with uh, President Obama nominating a uh, Supreme Court justice that the Senate refused to consider, uh, Lindsey Graham said, listen, if the shoe were on the other foot, um, I'd be doing the exact same thing. Use my words against me. Um, this time around, uh, the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, President Trump is nominating a Supreme Court justice in election year. And uh, Lindsey Graham, like all the other Republicans who made up a precedent not to consider the president's nominee the last time we were in the situation, uh, now said, oh, never mind, we didn't really mean that. So, you know, I, I think people are past the point of accusing these folks of hypocrisy. I think it is hypocritical. I, I think they've, they've made very clear that they didn't mean what they said uh, last time or this time. Uh, what matters is that they have the power within the rules to uh, get a justice on the court who will carry out their agenda, and that's what they're going to do. Um, I think the question is, for the Democratic Party, um, not what you're going to say about this, um, not how you're going to make their hypocrisy uh, look bad, but rather what you're going to do about this. Um, what kind of deterrence is available to the Democratic Party to uh, make Republicans like uh, Senator McConnell and Senator Graham and Senator Romney think twice uh, about going through with this. Um, and even if they do go through with it, um, in what ways can Democrats act to bring some small d democracy uh, back to the ways in which laws are passed and enforced in the United States? Dr. Goodman, the timing seems to be so key in all of this. You know that the seat that was occupied by Ruth Bader Ginsburg has to be filled, but it would make probably a, a major difference if it was filled in the next few weeks or if it was filled sometime in late January, early February. What do we know about how that may play out? 
Well, I think there are a couple of things. Um, one of the quirks or peculiarities of the system we have in the U.S. is that the election happens in November, uh, and yet the new members of Congress don't take their seats until January. Uh, I think it seems, timing-wise, pretty unlikely that Senator McConnell is going to be able to get a nominee through uh, and approved by the Senate by the time the election happens. But even if Republicans lose the Senate, uh, even if President Trump loses the White House, they're all still going to be in power there for a couple of months. Uh, And again, uh, within the rules, uh, they can do whatever they want to do with zero accountability in that period. It's going to be, it's certainly going to backfire for them politically. Um, It's certainly going to not look good. But I think they've been very clear that they don't really care about their accountability so much. They care about power. They care about passing their agenda. And taking the hit for them is worth it to get a lifetime Supreme Court appointment. You know, because the big theme that we've seen in Republican politics, um, certainly in the Trump years, but, but also before that, is an embrace of the least accountable, least democratic institutions that, that our government allows them to take advantage of. So if they can get a justice on the Supreme Court who's going to have lifetime tenure and be essentially unaccountable to the public, uh, they will take the hit for that in electoral terms every time. Because what matters is not the number of seats they have. What matters isn't their polling or their approval numbers. Uh, what matters is the ability uh, to do things like um, restrict universal health care, um, restrict abortion rights, and affect um, the abilities of uh, large donors to contribute as much as they want to influence the electoral process. They will take that outcome every time, and I think they're in the course of doing that. Wow. We're talking with Dr. Rob Goodman, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. And that right there indicates that there is a system that, if it isn't broken, is kind of chugging along with a lot of steam coming out from under the hood. Is there any way to look at this and say, come on, we you have to have accountability. And if there is no accountability, then you have to change so that we reinstitute accountability. Is there even a call for that coming from anywhere? Well, I, I hope it does. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely uh, despairing about this, but I think it really depends on the willingness of uh, Democrats in Congress and, and uh, in the presidency, if Joe Biden wins, to play their hand as best possible um, to recognize that the lesson they're being taught by the Republicans right now is that if something is allowable within the rules, um, you can do it. Um, one thing that is allowable within the rules is expanding the size of the Supreme Court and also changing the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. You know, these things aren't dictated by the Constitution. These things can be changed by statute law, uh, which takes majorities in, in Congress and the president to pass. Um, and there have been moments in American history um, in which this has been part of the conversation. Uh, the last time there was a conversation about court packing um, was during uh, President Roosevelt's tenure, um, you know, almost a century ago now. And usually, you know, I think in the folk memory of this period, court packing is remembered as a disaster because he certainly didn't get his way on that. But I think what people uh, don't recognize is that he was up against a court that was essentially in the process of striking down almost all the New Deal legislation that there was a response to the economic depression. Um, and after uh, the court packing scare, uh, the court changed uh, the court changed tack. They realized that if they were going to continue to stand in the way against the pretty clearly expressed will of the, the majority of the population, there were going to be political consequences. So even though court packing didn't work in terms of adding more justices to the court, the threat of it worked 
to bring a little bit of accountability to the system. I think Democrats really need to learn from that history. They need to learn that if it is allowable within the rules, they can do it and they ought to do it because a system in which one party plays constitutional hardball and the other does not is not a sustainable or balanced system. Uh, I wish that there were some kind of mutual forbearance going on. I wish that there was a willingness to respect the norms as they, they have existed and not to play hardball in doing things like using your lame duck session to get a justice through, as I think Mitch McConnell is preparing to do. Uh, but we're not in that state of affairs. And that means that the I think the only way to get towards accountability is for both sides to play hardball and hopefully to get to some place of, if not reconciliation, at least some kind of mutual deterrence. I think that's the best thing we can hope for in the immediate future. But it really requires Democrats being serious about the fact that politics isn't about um, respecting the norms that no longer exist. Uh, politics is about power. And if Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden get that in the way that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump get that, uh, we might have some kind of hope of getting back to some kind of stable equilibrium. Well, we'll see what does happen in that. We're talking with Dr. Rob Goodman, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Dr. Goodman, we started talking about words. Let's end talking about words. You have Joe Biden using a lot of words. You have President Donald Trump using a lot of words. And at this time of a campaign heading toward an election, not all of them are accurate. How much fact-checking do you think the average American is doing to look through at, at what is going on, to know how they're going to use their vote when it comes time to use that vote on the 3rd of November. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of fact-checking to do to do in both cases. I think part of the problem about the, the way that fact-checking has gotten into the media discourse, though, is, is the idea that if you can call out someone's inaccuracies and say, oh, Donald Trump was wrong about this, this, and this, that's going to matter. Um I think a, a lot of his base of support doesn't really care about the literal truth of what he says. Um, they, they, they care about it because he represents their cultural identity, uh, because he pursues policies that they like, because he makes liberals really angry. Um, so facts are important, and it's important to have a shared universe of facts. But at the same time, simply pointing out that so-and-so got his facts wrong uh, there, there, and there doesn't do it. Um, you need some kind of compelling vision of what happens once those facts are established. You know, facts let us have some kind of common reality that we can use to debate policy on, but without some kind of uh, vision of what you're going to do with those facts, um, you haven't really gotten that far. So what I want to caution people about is if they don't like the way that President Trump or any other politician uses facts, it's fine to point out places where they're inaccurate or lying or deceptive, and that's important. But don't expect that that is going to be enough. You know, people who have written about authoritarian politicians have pointed out that, that their supporters know plenty well when they're being deceptive or dishonest or distorting the truth, but they just don't care because what they like is sort of the ability to be on the joke. You know, what they like is the ability to have a politician to sort of makes reality in his or her own image. So fact-checking alone is not going to do it. Well, we are at a really interesting time in the world for so many reasons. Dr. Goodman, thank you for your insight. We really appreciate it. Keep safe. Uh, thanks so much. You keep safe, too, and thanks for having me on. That's Dr. Rob Goodman, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 